Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, I am finally back in Puerto Rico after having spent eight long days in Las Vegas for both the SALT Conference and the Las Vegas Money Show. You know, I really do enjoy uh, getting back in Puerto Rico. I miss it quite a bit when I'm away. You know, a lot of people who are thinking about making the move to Puerto Rico to take advantage of the uh, the tax benefits that exist here. I know one of the reasons that people are reluctant to come down here is, you know, they don't want to uproot their family and move to a place where they really don't know anybody. They leave their friends. They re- leave their family members. And I tell you, for me personally, probably the best thing about being here, other than the tax breaks and, and the beautiful weather, are the people that you meet when you come down here. It is an incredible group of people that have moved here. I think we're building a, a great community uh, of you know quasi expats here in Puerto Rico. So if uh, you're worried about not having enough friends and not having enough to do, that's the least of your worries. So uh, I certainly would recommend that more people look into making the move down here to uh, Puerto Rico. But I am also looking forward to going back up to Connecticut. I'm going to be uh, spending most of the summer up there. We'll be leaving Memorial Day weekend. And by the way, if you didn't have an opportunity uh, to come to any of the events in Vegas, although I will be back in Vegas again in July, uh, mid-July for Freedom Fest, I will be uh, in New York City on June 26th to attend the, uh, the premiere of the movie The Housing Bubble. And it is going to be on June uh, 26. You can buy tickets. Go to this website, letusdisagree.com, and you can get your tickets. I only think they're maybe 20 bucks, 25 bucks. And the the movie is a documentary about the 2008 housing bubble, but it features a lot of people who were predicting uh, the bubble or you know warning about the bubble before it popped. And warning about the financial crisis, of course, I am one of those people who was issuing those warnings, but I'm not the only one. Uh, but so it's a very good uh, documentary. I'll be there. Uh, and I think there's going to be a Q&A period with me and some of the other people who were featured in the movie. 
at the event. So uh, be great if you're in the New York area this summer, June 26th, go on letsdisagree.com and buy yourself some tickets. Meanwhile, it was another down day and down week in the stock market. So though considering what's going on, the markets really weren't down that much. In fact, today, uh, the Dow only dropped about 97 points, about 0.38%. The NASDAQ down a little bit over 1% even, 81.76. Again, the Russell 2000, the weakest of the big indexes, down almost 1.4%. So the domestically focused stocks are still uh, having more trouble than the uh, you know international stocks, multinational stocks. And so if you think it's all about trade, uh, you're wrong. Because clearly a lot of the stocks that are not involved in international trade that are more focused on the domestic economy, those are the ones that keep having problems. But, you know, I think the market probably would have been down even more today. uh, But for the economic news that came out earlier in the morning on consumer confidence, and I know the markets tend to place a lot of emphasis on consumer confidence, you know, even though the leading economic indicators came out a tad light, uh, the consumer confidence numbers were stronger than expected. Analysts had been looking for 97.5 for the May consumer sentiment number. And instead, we got 102.4, which I think is a 15-year high in this uh, index. And so it shows that consumers are particularly optimistic. They're particularly hopeful uh, that things are going to be getting better in the future. And I think one of the reasons that they are so optimistic is because of all the positive rhetoric that they are being bombarded with, with respect to the U.S. economy and how strong it is and how the economy is booming. And so I think despite the fact that a lot of American households are not feeling the boom personally. They're just assuming that it's going to come, that things are going to improve because the economy is so good. And again, all the rhetoric they're hearing regarding the trade war is how we're going to kick China's butt. I mean, how the economy is so strong and we're finally going to make the Chinese pay. And I think there's a lot of optimism out there that things are going to get better, even though they haven't gotten better. In fact, I was reading some numbers today about the auto loan delinquencies, and they have now surged to the highest they've been since 2010. In fact, if you look at a chart, you really see this big upward movement uh, recently in delinquencies in auto loans. And we're getting close to the highs from the you know, the Great Recession of 2009. I mean, if this really is a booming economy, and if so many people are employed why can't they make their car payments? I mean, why are people missing their car payments if the economy is so good? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. And what also should be very concerning is that if we have such a high level of delinquencies in car loans now, right, when we have low unemployment and this booming economy, what is going to happen to those auto loans when we go into a recession? What's going to happen after the boom turns into a bust? I mean, nobody is considering that because if people are having so much trouble making their car payments now while they have jobs and the economy is strong, what about when it's in a recession and they've lost their job? So we are going to be in very, very you know, dangerous uh, positioning for this next recession, given how 
weak everything is right now. I mean, normally, when you have a real economic recovery, consumers are paying down their debts, right? I mean, that's what you do when things are getting better. I go over that all the time, right? You want to get out of debt. You're paying off your credit cards when times are good. You pay off your car loan. Maybe you pay down your mortgage, right? You make some extra payments, right? I'm getting out of debt. Things are good, right? That's normally what happens when the economy is expanding. Then when it contracts, well, now you got to start running up more debt because you don't have enough income, right? The economy is slow and maybe you have to borrow a little bit more. But if you're running up bigger debts when the economy is good, what are you going to do when it turns south? I mean, that's the whole expression about saving for a rainy day, right? You're you're saving or paying down debts, right, when the sun is shining. And then when it rains, well, now you've got, you know, some savings to draw from. Or now you have the ability, let's say, to run up more debt because you've paid down your debt. So you have a better balance sheet. So now you can handle some additional debt during bad times. But if consumers are saving nothing when it's sunny, right, if they're running max credit card and auto loans when the sun is shining, what are they going to tap into when it's a rainy day? There is nothing there. And it's not just the consumer. It's the government. It's corporations. Everybody is making the mistake of levering up during good times, and they've got nothing left when the weather turns uh, nasty. No, we also got some weaker economic data that came out middle of the week. On Wednesday, we got retail sales. Those came in below estimates. It was an April number. Now, remember, the March number was really big, right? We got a 1.6% jump in uh in in march and i thought that was a fluke and and it was in fact they they revised that up to 1.7 percent jump so they were looking for a more modest 0.2 percent gain in april and instead of a 0.2 percent gain we got a 0.2 percent decline in in retail sales but it gets worse when you strip out autos there they were looking for an increase of 0.7 which followed the 1.3 percent rise in march and instead, we had just a 0.1, a 0.1% gain. And if you strip out gas and oil, instead of the 0.4% rise they were expecting, we got a 0.2% decline. So a very weak number for retail sales and also industrial production. That number came out much weaker than expected. They were looking for flat, right, following a small uh, 0.1%. Uh, percent drop in March. Now they did revise that up to 0.2, but the April number was minus 0.5, minus 0.5, so a weaker number. And that was the production number, the manufacturing number, which was unchanged in March. They were looking for a slight 0.1% rise in April, and instead we dropped another 0.5%. So both production and manufacturing down half a percent. These are weak numbers. I mean, that's why if you look at the Atlanta Fed's uh, estimate for Q2 GDP, they're at 1.1%. You know, so everybody keeps talking about the 3.1% number that we got in the first quarter, showing, oh, look at how our how strong the economy is. Well, if we just get 1.1 in the second quarter, that averages out to about 2 which is not that big a deal. And again, I think that this number could be a lot lower in in part because the deflator is going to be so much bigger uh, than it was in the first quarter. In fact, the only other 
person I, I'm hearing now constantly uh, or making this point is uh, is Jeff Gunlock again? He's I've heard him on television again speaking about the GDP deflator and the exaggerated effect that it had on artificially boosting Q1 GDP, but how all of that is going to reverse when it comes to the second quarter. But you know, a lot of people are talking about the fact that that big Q1 print is one of the reasons that so many people are so optimistic that now is the time for America to fight this trade war with China because our economy is so strong, right? We have this 3.1% GDP growth. And again, President Trump actually believes that the number was that high because of the tariffs. So he thinks the tariffs are the reason that the economy was so strong. And so that has emboldened him into thinking that, hey, we'll just keep on with these tariffs. We can win this trade war because we're in, in such good shape. But it's not just the president that has this uh, outlook. You know, just about everybody that I see interviewed on any of the financial uh, programs, everybody agrees, right? Everybody says that China is making a huge mistake, right? That they're, you know, that this this is, you know, this is like, uh, I, I, I read one guy's tweet that this is like... Uh, the, the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. They had no idea uh, what they were doing. They woke up at Sleeping Giant. And then, of course, we came back and we got into World War II. And ultimately, you know, we we dropped uh, those atomic bombs on Japan. And so we got them back for uh, for Pearl Harbor, right? They may have won uh, that small, you know, battle, that sneak attack, but they ended up losing the war. But believe me, this is not the case. I mean, the United States that we have today is not the United States of the Second World War, maybe maybe it's the other way around. I think maybe China uh, is the United States, and we're maybe Japan. We are underestimating uh, the strength of the Chinese economy and, and what this trade war ultimately means for China. Because I've been saying for a long, long time that the Chinese needed to wean themselves off of the American customer because it was not a good relationship for China because they were vendor financing uh, customers that could never actually repay their loans. And what I keep hearing these people saying is China, you know, they can't do this because America is the best customer. We're the biggest customer. Everybody needs the U.S. market and that China can't live without us. And so they're going to learn this lesson the hard way. And if we really were the world's best customer, then maybe that would be the case. But if the Chinese have to loan us the money, if the only way that we could buy Chinese products is if China loans us the money to do it, then we're not their good customer. We're a lousy customer, right? And it's not that they just have to loan us money now. They have to loan us money indefinitely. They have to loan us the money to pay the interest on the money they've loaned us because we can never pay any of it back. So it's a situation where they have to constantly throw a good money after bad or good products after bad money indefinitely. So we probably are doing China a big favor in that we're going to force them to do something that they should have done on their own anyway. Now it maybe it gives them the excuse because there are going to be some short-term uh, disruptions associated with transforming you know, the economy away from exports to the United States, more towards domestic consumption or trade with other nations. But all of that short-term pain, and I don't even know how painful it will be, but it will be more than uh, offset by the long-term gains associated with getting themselves out of this relationship, which is really not a symbiotic relationship, but a, a parasitic one with the United States, the parasite, basically living off the productivity of the Chinese workers. And yes, I agree that China 
is ripping off uh, you know, our intellectual property. There's no question that that happens, and I'm not going to deny that that happens. And that's going to continue. See, here's the problem. We're going to fight this trade war. That's not going to stop. China's going to keep ripping off our IP. So they're going to still get that benefit. We're still going to have that loss. But now we're not going to get the benefit of having all these Chinese imports that we don't have to pay for. The American consumer is going to have to pay a lot more money to buy these things or go without these things. And we're going to do without Chinese capital. We're going to have to find somebody else to loan us the money that the Chinese aren't loaning us. Or we're going to have to stop borrowing it. Or we're going to have to save it ourselves, which means we're going to have to stop spending, which we're going to be doing anyway. Because prices are going to go up so much that Americans aren't going to be able to spend. Or they maybe they'll keep spending, but they're not going to buy as much uh, with the money that they spend. But again, more likely... It's the Federal Reserve that's going to come out and create the money. So instead of exporting our inflation to China, we're going to have to deal with that inflation ourselves. And I think the Chinese are going to be a lot better off if they don't have to import our inflation. And we're going to be a lot worse off if we can't export it. But let me get back uh, to the markets and talk about uh, a little bit more what's going on, particularly with uh, these money-losing companies, right? Uh, One of them in particular, Pinterest, which we've talked about on this podcast that came public about uh, about a month ago. And so today they came out with their first uh, earnings report, although not really earnings report, loss report, because they, they don't have any earnings. Uh, but they came out with their numbers, and they end up reporting a first quarter loss of $41.1 million. Right? That's just for the quarter. But that was three times as large as what Wall Street had been expecting. Right. And this is, you know, people just bought this stock a month ago. Right. And they were expecting, you know, a certain loss. And now they lost three times as much as people who thought as people thought when they bought the IPO a month ago. Now, it was a small reduction in the loss from the same quarter in the prior year. But there was the expectation that it was going to be a much smaller loss. Right. That Hey, they were going to be closer to making a profit, but they're not close at all. And the stock was down about 13 and a half percent at one point. It was down, I think, over 15% right near the open. But the stock is still positive. I mean, Pinterest is still up since the IPO, right? That's not the case for um, uh, Uber. That's not the case for Lyft. Although, you know, another company that is not public yet, one of these unicorns that is hoping to go public at some point, a company called WeWork. And WeWork reported a Q1 loss of $234 million in, in, one, in one quarter. I mean, so annualize that out, you're talking about almost a billion-dollar loss. Now, I think the CEO of the company, I was reading a, a quote from him, he's saying that investors should look at these losses as an investment, right? So it's not a loss, it's an, it's an investment. I guess, you know, there is an old saying that, you know, you have to spend money to make money, right? Uh, but in the case of WeWork, it's not really that you're spending money to make money. You're, you're spending money to lose money. In fact, I think this report proves that WeWork doesn't. And so I think it's going to be very difficult for this company to really have a successful IPO. And, you know, especially if I am right, about what is going to happen to the commercial real estate market. Because I think a lot of the so-called investments that WeWork is making are in commercial real estate. And I think in this next recession, commercial real estate is going to be hit particularly hard, especially if it is an inflationary recession, stagflation, because that could drive interest rates up 
at the same time the economy is in recession, which is going to destroy the cap rates on commercial real estate. I mean, not only is the revenue going to be drying up because their tenants are going to be out of business and not paying their rent, uh, but interest rates are going to bring down the present value of those diminished rental streams. And so that's going to further complicate uh, the world uh, for WeWork and, uh, and interfere with their potential IPO. But I want to point out, too, another one of the money-losing companies that is already public and that I have been talking about on this podcast quite a bit is Tesla. And Tesla was down another 7.5% today, just today. Think down about 13 or 14% on the week. Tesla is now down about 45% since its 52-week high. The high of the stock was 387 46. I think when Musk was tweeting about a buyout, I think the price he was talking about was like 360 or something like that. I'm not I'm not sure, but it was it was up in that area, that 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 tweet that got him into trouble. But we closed today at 211 and we actually traded as low as 20892. Uh so we spiked down there kind of close to the close and then there was a little buying coming into the close, so we closed off that low. But I mean we closed near the low of the day because it made the low of the day probably five minutes before the close. And the price that it closed at would have been the low of the day, but for that little spike uh, down near the end of the day. But what's really going to be interesting about Tesla is the chart. I mean, if you look at this chart, Tesla is at a point where there is nothing but air beneath where we are now, which is 211 and maybe 30 or 40 bucks. Because you go back into a chart and you can see that in Early 2013, that's when the price of Tesla stock really took off. It was in the 30s at the beginning of 2013, and it ramped up to like 300 by the end of that year. So you're talking about really a tenfold increase in the price of that stock in a year, right? And now ever since then, you know, we've been going sideways, right? I mean, we've gotten a little bit higher because we got up uh, up into the mid 300s. But you look at a chart from probably April of 2014 until today, it's really a straight line with the exception of a, a double top up there at around that three, you know, 380 level or so. But we're about to break down. I mean, we broke down. If you draw a trend line between the February low and uh, and just draw that all the way through February of 2013, all the way till today, we just broke below that trend line, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple months ago on a monthly chart. And there's nothing but air there. And there's a lot of debt, right? I mean, Tesla, remember, they just announced not too long ago that they were going to raise cash. They're going to sell stock. And, you know, Elon Musk, they made a big deal about the fact that he's going to be putting some money in. But it's a trivial amount of money relative to his net worth. Uh, but, you know, they're trying to raise some money to pay down debt. But they got a lot of debt. So this could be a big story stock that can get into a lot of trouble. There's a lot of bonds here. And, again, this could be the poster child between this, between what's happening with Uber, the market's appetite for money-losing companies and their willingness to finance money losing companies where the losses are on such an enormous scale when you're talking about companies losing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year i mean these are staggering losses to expect investors to shoulder these losses and consider them investments right this is incredible speculation again all of this was made possible by the cheap money that was flowing thanks to the federal reserve but these chickens are coming home to roost 
Now, while I'm on the topic of credit, I wanted to speak a little bit about a new bill that was introduced in Congress. The sponsor in the United States Senate is Bernie Sanders. And in the House, it is the bartender, AOC. So you got AOC and Bernie Sanders, right? The two socialists in the House and in the Senate coming together, right? And they've got a new bill that supposedly is going to benefit the average guy, the worker. And what they want to do is they want to put a cap on credit card interest rates. They want to make sure that credit card companies charge no more than 15% per year interest. Now, I just want to discuss the intent and then the actual effect of a law, right? So what Sanders and AOC actually want is they want consumers to be able to borrow money at a lower rate of interest. Right. So they want to say, hey, it's not fair. You have credit card companies charging 18 percent, 20 percent, 22 percent. We want to put a cap of 15 percent, which is still pretty high. Right. I mean, it's not like they're trying to cap it at 5 percent or 10 percent. They're trying to cap it at 15 percent. Right. Which is a relatively high rate of interest. Right. And the idea is, hey, this is going to prevent these rich banks Uh, from taking advantage of poor people, average American people with these loan shark, you know, 15% rates. So that, that is the purpose. And of course, everybody thinks, oh, this is great. This is noble. Yes, nobody should have to pay uh, more than 15% interest. But the reality is nobody has to pay any interest because nobody forces anybody to use a credit card. So to the extent that somebody is paying 15% interest, It's not because they're being forced to. It's because they're voluntarily accepting those terms. Now, you could say maybe some people don't understand it. I mean, look, when you get a credit card, I mean, it's pretty obvious. They tell you you know, right up front what the interest is. And in fact, if you use your credit cards properly, like I do, I get an interest-free loan from the bank because I don't pay my credit cards until the due date. But I get a float, right? You, you buy something on credit. You buy something with a credit card, and sometimes it's almost two months before you have to pay the bill. So long as you pay the bill in full, then you don't pay interest on anything. So, in fact, you earn things. You get bonus points. You get mileage. You get a lot of stuff. But if you want to carry a balance, well, then you're going to have to pay interest. Now, the reality is, though, the cap is not going to achieve what Sanders and AOC intent. And this is always what happens when it comes to uh, government, right? They, they don't understand the consequences of their actions, right? Of the intent, because they want to feel good about what they're doing. Uh, they want the voters to think they're getting something for nothing, but that's not the case. Now, why do credit card companies charge interest rates upwards of 15% now, right? I mean, Because if the credit card companies that are charging high interest rates were ripping off their customers, well, there'd be another credit card company that would offer a lower rate of interest. I mean, it's a very competitive market right now when it comes to credit cards. I mean, there's so many credit cards out there competing uh, for consumers. Uh, It would be pretty difficult for a credit card company to get away with usury, to really overcharge and and get a windfall profit, because there'd be another credit card company that would try, hey, transfer your balance over here. We'll give you a better deal. And in fact, the vast majority of people who are using their credit cards are not paying 15% interest. I mean, there are plenty of credit cards where you can get a credit card and you're paying a lot less than 15%. And so to the extent that somebody could get a better deal. They're getting that deal. 
Now, the reason that some people are paying more than 15% is because they're very bad credit risks. And the only way that a credit card company can make a loan to somebody who's a really bad risk is if they charge a really high rate of interest. Because what happens is when people are a very bad risk, a lot of times they just don't pay the money back, right? They use their credit cards and they don't pay their money back. So a lot of people who are risky borrowers, in order to compensate the banks for the added risk that they're not going to pay, well, they have to pay a higher rate of interest. And the banks are not making an excessive rate overall on this pool of borrowers because, yes, some people are actually paying the 15%. But that makes up for a lot of people who pay nothing. In fact, where they use the credit card, they buy stuff and the bank doesn't get any of the money back. Not only do they not get their interest, they don't get their principal. So they have to basically take all these high-risk uh, borrowers and, and kind of put them in a pool and say, okay, the only way it makes sense for us to loan you guys any money is if you all pay 15% or 20% or 22%, whatever it is. There's some number that makes it profitable. If they could do it at a lower number, then a bank would do it and they would get all the business, right? If you could actually lower interest rates, let's say there was a bank out there that could take all the uh, high-risk borrowers, right? guys that have bankruptcies or a lot of debt, I mean, whatever it is, low credit scores, and could loan these guys money at 15% right now. They would be doing it. If everybody else is at 20, if they could make a profit at 15, they would do it and they would monopolize the whole industry, right? They would take on all that business. Obviously, whatever the rate right now in a free market Whatever the banks are charging is the competitive rate. There is no better rate out there. So what is going to happen now if the government says, we're going to cap it? You can't charge more than 15% interest. Okay, well, now all the banks have to go redo the numbers. And they have to decide what credit quality loan can we make? What customer is still profitable if we charge 15%, right? Now there's going to be a lot of people where okay, you know, we'd have to charge this guy 16% or 17% or 20% to make it worthwhile to give this person a credit card. But the government says that's illegal. You can only charge 15%. So the intent of the law is to force the credit card companies to charge people 15% who they're otherwise going to charge 20%. But that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is the people who are paying 15% are going to keep paying 15%, right? The people who are paying 12%, well, they'll keep paying 12%. The people who are paying 8% will keep paying 8%. But the people who are paying 18%, they won't pay anything because they're not going to get any credit because the banks will not be able to make those loans profitably and the banks are not in the business of giving away money. The banks are in the business of making a profit. And if you're a lender, you make a profit by making loans that the borrower pays back. And if it doesn't pay it back, you have to make sure that you at least collect enough in interest from the people who do pay you to make up for the losses for the people who don't. And since people who have low credit scores and are high-risk borrowers, since those people have a greater likelihood of not paying the money back, 
then the people who fit into those criteria have to pay a much higher rate of interest in order for the overall credit extension to be profitable. So all that is going to happen as a result of this law, if it actually gets passed and if Trump were to actually sign it, the only thing that will happen is the very people that AOC and Sanders are so concerned about, right? they're just going to be denied credit. Now, in reality, might that be a good thing? Yeah, probably. I mean, a lot of these people shouldn't be borrowing money. And if they're really upset at how much credit card debt there is out there, they should look at the Federal Reserve. I mean, the Fed is keeping interest rates artificially low. If we didn't have artificially low interest rates, credit card rates would actually be much higher and standards would probably be much tighter. It would be a lot harder for consumers to get credit, especially if we had to rely on our real savings, right? Then, you know, there, there wouldn't be all this credit. But the reason that it exists is because of the Fed. The Fed is fueling it all. It's enabling people to borrow on, on credit cards. It's enabling the government to keep borrowing. It's enabling everybody to live beyond their means. So it's the Fed that is the, the real source of the problem. And so if, you know, as a result of this law, uh, fewer consumers can borrow money, I mean, ultimately, I think that's a good thing. But the ends don't justify the means. I mean, and of course, this is not the intent of the law to stop poor people from buying stuff on credit. I mean, the government wants everybody buying stuff on credit because that's what keeps the, the you know, the, the bubble going, right? They want consumer spending. They don't care if they have to borrow the money. They just want to make sure they buy stuff. And so the GDP keeps going up. This will backfire on that score. But, you know, just because I think that consumer credit is damaging the country, Right. That doesn't mean I support the government coming in and telling banks how much interest they can and can't charge. I mean, first of all, I don't even think that's constitutional. I mean, I know there are usury laws, but those are usually on the state level. I don't think it's up to the federal government to determine uh, what type of interest can be charged. And by the way, I you know I disagree with the laws on the state level. I mean, look, I mean, it's it is a free market. You have a willing borrower and a willing lender. And whatever terms they agree to, that should be the deal. Now, if there's some deception, if there's fraud, if people are induced into paying interest rates that are much higher than they think, well, then that should be illegal because fraud should be illegal. But if everybody is up and up, if I'm going to loan you money and I tell you right up front, the rate of interest is 30% a year and you know, you're know you willing to borrow that money at 30% a year, I mean, that shouldn't be illegal. Now, first of all, if you know you come to borrow money and somebody says, I'll loan you the money, but I want 30% a year, why would anybody agree to that loan? Obviously, because 30% is the lowest rate that they could get. I mean, because then he would find someone, well, what about 25? What about 20? What about 15? So to the extent that the consumer shops around and, and chooses his best deal, what difference does it make to the government how high the interest rate is, right? If you know, if it's a if it's a um, a willing borrower and a willing lender, right now, you know, I mean, obviously, if the guy doesn't pay, I mean, you can't be a loan shark. You can't send you know a goon over there to break his legs. That would be illegal, right? I mean, so somebody loaning somebody thirty percent, a they got to realize there's probably a good chance they're not going to get their money back. That might be one of the reasons the guy is willing to take out a loan with those kind of terms is he probably knows he's going to default. Uh, but as long as your only recourse is 
the law and you can't resort uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to what a loan shark would do who was with a mob, then there should be nothing wrong. You know, it should be allowed. And by the way, the only reason that people go to loan sharks in the first place and pay these exorbitant rates of interest is because they can't go to a legal bank and borrow the money legally because it's against usury laws. So what happens is the government, in order to protect us from having to pay too high a rate of interest, they say, okay, you can't charge somebody more than a certain amount of money. But then if somebody really needs a loan and they can't get one within the legal statutory limit, then they end up having to go to the mafia. They have to go to a loan shark and they have to borrow money illegally because they can't borrow it legally. So what the government does when they fix the price is they create a shortage. They create a shortage of credit and then the black market is delivering the solution. But of course, now when you borrow money from a loan shark and he's charging you a rate of interest that exceeds the statutory limit, he has no recourse in the courts to enforce the loan. So the only way he can enforce the loan is through violence, through intimidation. So he's got to say, look, either you pay me back or I'm going to break your legs, I'm going to beat you up. And that's the only way that the loan shark could actually collect on his loans because he cannot legally collect because he's made an unlawful loan. So the government is the reason that you have loan sharks. If it wasn't for the government making high interest rate loans illegal, then people could borrow money at higher rates of interest from legitimate lending institutions without having to worry about somebody breaking their legs if they don't pay it back. But it definitely is not something that the federal government should be involved in. So even though the effect of this particular law may be to uh, deny people credit cards who shouldn't be using them anyway, who would be who should be doing without stuff, who should be paying cash or who should be saving. Two wrongs don't make a right. I, I, I would not agree uh, with this with this law. But the main reason I wanted to point it out is to show again uh, the, the how liberals think and the unintended consequences of the laws that they pass because they, they, they have these fantasies in their heads about the way things should be. Oh, this is not right. Nobody should have to pay more than 15%. And so they think they help people out by, by passing the law. But all it does is it changes behavior. And now people who used to be able to borrow money can't. That's what happens. It's the same thing as the minimum wage. It works the exact same way. When they pass a law that says you can't charge somebody more than 15% interest, that means all the people who could have borrowed money at 16% and 17% and 18%, now they can't borrow money anymore. They can't borrow at 15% because it's not profitable for the banks to lend at 15%. If it was profitable, they would already be doing it based on competition. That's how it works with the minimum wage. You set a minimum wage, whatever it is, let's say it's $15 an hour, that's your minimum wage. But well, what does it mean? It means if your productivity is $14 an hour or $13 an hour or $12 an hour, you can't get a job because nobody is going to hire you and lose money, just like nobody is going to make a loan to you and lose money. Well, while I'm on the subject of losing money, I want to talk a little bit about Bitcoin and the volatility that we've had over the last 24 hours or so. You know, when I recorded the last podcast on Friday, Bitcoin had just moved above $8,000, which was about double the price that it began the year. And it had a huge run. I mean, as soon as it broke above 4000 it went right to 5000 6000 7000 8000 
a lot of excitement being generated within the Bitcoin community. Aha, this is it. Finally, we're going to the moon. In fact, I had mentioned on Friday that we hadn't seen any kind of meaningful pickup in search volumes. Well, we now have seen a bit of a jump. It's still nothing like uh, it was back when Bitcoin went all the way up to 20,000. And I don't expect it to scale those heights again. But we have had some increase in interest based on the enthusiasm that has been generated from the increase in price, which of course I believe is the goal of those who have been manipulating the price higher, is they are trying to generate some interest in order to generate some buying. That is the pump in the pump and dump. Well, we got as high as 8,400. And then last night, I think Bitcoin was trading just around 8,000. And at about 11, 11.30 or so Eastern time, all of a sudden, there was a tremendous uh, decline. The price of Bitcoin, probably in the matter of minutes, sold all the way off to just below 6,200. So you're talking about a 25% decline, basically an entire bear market, right? Wall Street likes to define a bear market as a 20% drop. Well, you had an entire bear market in Bitcoin in about a minute. And, you know, so huge selling, obviously, you know, those people who are trying to say that Bitcoin represents some type of a store of value, A, you can't be a store of value without value to store. But even if you're trying to present Bitcoin as some type of stable uh, safe haven, obviously, anything that can drop 20, 25 percent in a matter of minutes cannot be described as safe safe haven, store value. It is a highly speculative asset at best, but there's no way that you can describe it as a store of value or as a safe haven. Now, the price recovered, but pretty much kind of stabilized around the low 7,000s. I mean, 6,900, 7,200. In fact, right now, we're trading about 7250. So this is kind of the high end of the range. I mean, I think it maybe it's been as high as 7400 and change. Uh, it hasn't gone back anywhere near 8000 uh, at least since uh, since that big drop, but it's been trading again in a narrow range, mostly above but sometimes below uh, 7000. But I want to do uh, point out too one of the quotes I guess that I'm seeing uh, on the internet right now regarding my debate that I had at the Saul conference where, you know, Bitcoin versus gold, one of the uh, the quotes that seems to be have gotten picked up in some of the, uh, the, the Bitcoin friendly publications. I haven't really seen any mainstream um, reporters writing about this debate, but I have seen some of the uh, Bitcoin friendly online publications have written about it. And mainly they, you know, they try to discredit me and try to make Bitcoin look good. And so one of the points that I made that I think they're really trying to exaggerate for effect is that they're talking about how I said that the people who buy Bitcoin are a bunch of young fools who don't know any better. So in other words, I'm insulting the people who are buying Bitcoin and they're trying to basically uh, put that out there to get people to be defensive uh, because, you know, they, they're Bitcoin buyers, their supporters, and now I'm defending them. And so they're trying to create some kind of animosity towards me because I'm saying that the people who are buying Bitcoin are a bunch of fools. But I wanted to put that into some context. So anybody who's read that knows exactly why that subject brought up. So uh, my opponent in this debate 
uh, was making the point that the reason that Bitcoin was going to be so popular in the future relative to gold was because the younger generation, the millennials, they don't know anything about gold, they, and, and, but they know about Bitcoin. They're on the internet, they're, you know, they're savvy, uh, they're tech savvy, and so these new young people who don't know anything about gold, don't know anything about the history of gold, they're not going to buy gold. They're more likely to buy Bitcoin, therefore we should all buy Bitcoin now, knowing that all the demand in the future coming from young people uh, is going to be to Bitcoin. And so that was one of his arguments why people should be dropping their gold and buying Bitcoin because all of the millennials were going to buy Bitcoin and not gold. And I thought that was a ridiculous argument. And I said, look, I am not going to take investment advice from a bunch of millennials. I mean, just because a bunch of young kids who don't know anything about the history of money are going to be foolish enough to buy into this type of scam, right? That doesn't mean I'm going to do it too. And I agreed with him that he's probably right that there are a lot of millennials that will probably buy Bitcoin instead of gold. They should be buying gold, but they don't know anything about it, and they're going to make the mistake of buying Bitcoin. But ultimately, I don't think that they're going to buy a lot of Bitcoin because they don't have a lot of money. At least they're not going to buy a lot of it at current prices. Uh, so it's not going to be enough uh, to move the market. I mean, we're not going to be able to you know, unload. The people who got in early aren't going to unload all their Bitcoin on a bunch of millennials uh, because they don't have that much money. But also, I think one of the other points that Barry was trying to make is that he thinks that a lot of these millennials are going to end up inheriting a bunch of gold from their grandparents and their parents. And as soon as they get it, well, they're just going to sell it to buy Bitcoin because they don't know anything about gold and they want Bitcoin. And I, I think I pointed out, first of all, that I don't think that there's a lot of gold that millennials are looking to inherit. I mean, most millennials are going to inherit nothing. Right. And those that are lucky enough to inherit some gold probably also inherited some wisdom from the parent who left them that gold. Because if you're a father or grandfather and you have some gold coins that you're leaving to your children or grandchildren, you also are probably educating them. From what I know from being in the gold business, uh, most people who do know enough about government and monetary history to buy gold they also impart some wisdom on their children. So the people who are standing to inherit the gold, they make sure they understand its value and they will continue to hold it. If they don't, then what's likely to happen is people will either sell the gold or uh, before they die or you know, they will leave it to somebody who they know will be smart enough to hold on to it. So I do not think you're going to have this avalanche of selling coming from millennials who have inherited a bunch of cougarans uh, from their father and then who immediately sell their gold in order to buy Bitcoin. And by the way, I don't think this Bitcoin bubble is going to last nearly as long as people think. So I don't think you're talking about 10, 20, 30 years from now when a lot of this inheritance is supposedly going to be enjoyed by you know these millennials. I think the bubble will have long been burst. But yes, in the meantime, uh, a lot of young, inexperienced people are going to be taken in. And I think, you know, when you want to ignore the advice of a lot of older, more experienced people, right, people who know better, who have been around the block a few times, who have been burned uh, in potentially uh, uh, manias like the dot-com bubble or things like that or the housing bubble, people who have a little bit more experience and a little more uh, common sense have some battle scars, uh, you should pay attention to what these people have to say. There's some wisdom that you achieve with age uh, that you don't have in your youth. 
While I'm talking about the topic of losing money, I want to revisit a subject that I ended my last podcast on, and that was the $2 billion plus uh, award that a Oakland jury returned in favor of a couple of plaintiffs who claimed uh, that they developed cancer as a result of using Roundup, which is a pesticide, uh, was made by Monsanto, which is now owned by the German company Bayer. And when I talked about it, I mispronounced the ingredient glyphosate, uh, which is the supposed uh, uh chemical that is causing the cancer. I call it glyphosate, and it's uh, actually pronounced uh, glyphosate. And a lot of people were making comments, I I noticed, on the YouTube channel about my mispronunciation of that word. And look, I mean, I I mispronounce a lot of words. That is a trait I inherited from my father. I think if you've been listening to my podcast long enough, you'll notice that there are quite a few things that I end up uh, mispronouncing. uh, And um, But anyway, but it doesn't really, it doesn't take anything away uh, from my analysis. People were saying, hey, how could you how could you um, know anything about it if you can't pronounce it? Well, I mean, those two have nothing to do with one another. But I wanted to uh, point out one more interesting fact that I didn't even realize because I, I, I looked at the the verdict very quickly. As soon as I finished the last podcast, I, um, I commented on it. So I hadn't read everything. But I didn't realize, and I, in fact, I read this in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which was actually you know, a pretty good uh, piece that was written Basically, that was critical of this jury award and the judge in particular in the case. But apparently, um, Bayer tried to introduce evidence uh, of the FDA's recent finding, right? They reiterated their finding that uh, glyphosate is safe, right? That it does not cause cancer, right? This is the FDA. The U.S. Uh, FDA comes out and says they find that it's safe, doesn't cause cancer. And so the defense wants to introduce this evidence to the jury. And the judge didn't let it in. In fact, the judge said that it was irrelevant. So think about this for a second. You have this elderly, infirm couple, right, who's very sick and who have all sorts of high-risk factors for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, right? Lots of things could have given them cancer, right? They're claiming that, no, none of these things caused it. None of these other high-risk factors caused it. We know that we got it from spraying Roundup in our garden, right? That They know that that's how they got it. That, But for Roundup, you know, despite all the other diseases that they have and all the other high-risk factors, they never would have developed uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And now you have Bayer wants to introduce evidence where there are studies that show that the chemical in uh, Roundup is safe and doesn't cause cancer, and they won't let them introduce that on the grounds that it's irrelevant. What could be more relevant than evidence that the chemical that they claim caused their cancer is safe and doesn't cause cancer? And, of course, the judge allowed all, all sorts of BS evidence that it did cause cancer, even though they have no real evidence. In fact, they had one expert, right, some so-called expert who was testifying that it was probably uh, the Roundup that caused the cancer, right, again, probably. And this guy wasn't even board certified. In fact, he flunked the exam twice, and then after flunking it twice, he gave up and he stopped trying. So, I mean, they had to scrape the bottom of the barrel to find this guy, a doctor that can testify, right, because 
probably all the people that were board certified, the ones that were smart enough to pass the test, know that it doesn't cause cancer. And in fact, this guy doesn't actually practice. The only thing he does for a living is testify at these type of trials because he's a hired gun. These guys will say whatever they're paid to say by the plaintiffs in order to deliver a verdict uh, that is uh, you know, completely belied by the facts and the evidence. But this, again, is another reason that this case could be thrown out on appeal. That is reversible error. The fact that the judge did not allow in evidence that would have shown that the, uh, you know, that, that Roundup was safe and did not cause cancer, obviously that is the most relative type of evidence that the jury should have been allowed to hear. But for whatever reason, the judge denied it. But again, the other reason that the verdict needs to be thrown out is because it's not based on any evidence. Look, if we are going to try to maintain a capitalist system, right, if we're going to have rule of law, we can't allow theft by jury, right? There's something called due process and private property, and you cannot abrogate that with a jury, right? You can't simply put a bunch of uh, socialist jurors. Remember, how do they get the jury pool? Because the average juror is dumber than the average voter, right? And generally, you have to be registered to vote in order to be able to be on the jury, because I think that's where they get the names from the voter rolls. But most people get out of jury duty. I've never been on jury duty in my life. And um, most of the people I know have not been on jury duty. I mean, most people don't want to be on jury duty. I mean, generally, either you don't have a job because to be on jury duty, you're not working. And, and so a lot of times there are people who aren't working. So why aren't they working? They're on Social Security. They're on welfare, right? So whatever they're on, they don't, they don't collect a job. Or their job is, is, is so low paying that, you know, they'd, they'd rather be, uh, be on the jury. But, um, you know, most people get out of jury duty. It's unfortunate. So you don't have, you know, the best and the brightest sitting on these juries. And then, of course, you know, they, they throw out anybody decent. You know, you, you have these, uh, uh, the, the lawyers are pretty good at, at figuring out, you know, who's, who they want on these juries. Uh, so you, you can't have a situation where you can allow juries to be manipulated to render these enormous awards, which really is our theft, amount to uh, you know, confiscation of property. Because the basic argument that's being made is that this is a mean, evil company and they're doing bad things and they need to be punished. And here is an elderly couple that is sick and they should be rewarded. And so it's just, it's right just to take money away from these rich, greedy, evil people and give it to these old, you know, good people who, who are sick, right? That can't be allowed. You can't have a capitalist system without the rule of law. Businesses have to know that they can operate without having their money or their capital stolen by a jury. Now, it's one thing if they've actually done something wrong and you can prove it. And and I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, these the judges should not, um, you know, overturn something that the jury a decision that was made by the jury. Well, not if the jury is clearly wrong. Look, you know, what if the, what if the jury convicts somebody of murder, right? But there's no evidence whatsoever of murder. And for some reason, the jury comes out with this crazy verdict that, you know, the guy did it, right? And and and, and now he's being he's going to have to go uh, to jail or maybe he's got the death penalty. Well, if a, if a, if a judge looks at the evidence 
and says, I don't know how a jury could have possibly come to this conclusion based on this evidence. There's no evidence whatsoever. It makes no sense that the jury did this. Then the judge should throw it out. It doesn't matter what the idiotic jury said. The judge should throw it out. Okay, let's have another trial. All right, it's not like, hey, the, you know, the guy walks free. Look, there was no evidence. It makes no sense. You go back and you try this guy again, and you actually come up with some evidence that he actually committed murder. I don't know how you got a conviction the first time, but you're going you're gonna to have to get it again. And so, I mean, that's all that would happen with these verdicts, too. A judge looks at this uh, trial and looks at this verdict and says, wait a minute, there is not a single bit of evidence. There's no scientific evidence that links this chemical with cancer. And I don't know how the jury found it, but I'm going to throw out this award because it makes no sense. You want to go back to the drawing board? You want to go and actually put forth real evidence? You want to have real studies and real experts that actually show this? Fine. But we're not going to allow you to walk away with this billion dollar, two billion dollar, whatever judgment just because a, a, a jury decided they wanted to steal money from the defendant and give it to the plaintiff. That is not how... Uh, capitalism has to work. We need the rule of law. Yes, trial by jury is an important concept, particularly when it comes to the government, right? That's really where juries are most important, where the government is charging somebody with a crime and the jury is there to protect the public from an oppressive government. I mean, that's really too why you have the grand jury. Even before, if you're going to a criminal prosecution, the government has to go before a grand jury and convince the grand jury that there's some probable cause to believe a crime has even been committed before somebody even has to be be tried. And this goes back to to the monarchs, right? Back in the day, you know, you'd have a, a king was the country, and the king couldn't just, you know, you had a constitutional monarchy, and before the king could uh, could tr- could charge somebody with a crime, you know, there needs to be a jury, right? There needs to be some impartial group of people to actually decide. I mean, and that's why, too, you know, we have our whole system of jury of your peers. But when it comes to civil actions and civil liabilities there, it's not nearly as as important because it's not government power. It's not the government trying to deprive you of your life and your liberty and where you need the protection of a jury. And that's why, too, and I don't have time to get into it on this podcast, but that's why the concept of jury nullification is so important. And of course, you know, no judges even allow juries to know about it. I mean, in fact, if a lawyer tries to tell a juror about jury nullification, they can get this barred. But it is an important uh, principle of American jurisprudence that juries are not just there to consider the facts, but they're actually there to consider the law. Meaning that if they think the law is unjust, right, they are able to acquit a defendant even if he's guilty of breaking the law if they think the law isn't right. That's why the jurors have the rights to judge the facts as well as the law. So you can make an argument to a jury, yes, I broke this law, but the law is wrong. The law is bad. The law is unconstitutional. And if the jury agrees with you, they are allowed to acquit. They're allowed to turn down a decision that is, you know, contradicts the law. The judges always want to say, the judge is going to determine the law. We're going to tell you, the jury, what the law is. And all you do is judge the facts. You apply the facts to the law. But what they'll never tell the jury is they actually have a right to consider and judge the law. And if they don't like the law, they can nullify the law. I mean, that's what happened uh, during slavery, right? You had people who were convicted of harboring runaway slaves. And you would have jurors 
that were against slavery, even though the guy was guilty, they voted not guilty because they didn't like slavery. They didn't like the laws. And so even though somebody was caught harboring a runaway slave or abetting a runaway slave, the jury just said not guilty and they got to walk free. And it's a good thing because it keeps government honest and it keeps oppressive laws off the books. But when it comes to one person suing another person, right, then it's a different situation. It's not abuse of government power. You need to have due process and you need to have a check on juries. You need to make sure that juries actually follow the law and actually render decisions that are consistent with the facts and the evidence that are presented at the case. And if they don't do that, then it is the job of the appeals court judge to reverse those decisions. And if the appeals court judge doesn't get it, well, then it's up to the Supreme Court to do it.